Section 10 of A Minor War History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter number 31. Camp Baker, Chickamauxin, Maryland, December 1st, 1861. I am just in from our standard show. A little schooner running up the river and thumbing her nose at the rebel batteries. In all, they fired 70 shots at her, with the usual result, no damage done. There was much noise and smoke, a great splashing at the water, and lots of fun for the boys in the gallery, as every shot they fire cost them from 10 to 15 dollars. Each schooner trip up or down the river must be an expensive job for them. They must burn up about a thousand good dollars every time, mainly to amuse a lot of Yankee soldiers over on the Maryland shore. Next Tuesday, there is to be a grand review of this division, together with an inspection. These functions are doubtless a military necessity, but not very popular with the men, especially the inspections. You are told out with your entire outfit, and everything is hauled over, peeked into and examined. They say General McDowell, the old fellow who led us to Bull Run and back, is down headquarters. The last time I saw him, he was riding down the front of Burnside's brigade in the cornfield at Bull Run and telling us we had won a victory. There are a thousand and one rumors afloat as to our leaving here, but I am not expecting to move in any other direction than straight across the river. Any man with a vivid imagination can make a guess. Whisper it to one or two, and before night it is all over camp as an authentic tip from headquarters. General Hanselman's division is advanced on the other side almost down to the rebel position, and my guess is that he will come down on them before long. While we will cross here and give them Jesse with the aid of the gunboats, they are getting ready for us. We can see them digging and throwing up entrenchments on the opposite hills. Letter number 32 Camp Baker, Chickamauxin, Maryland, December 8, 1861. Tomorrow rounds out just seven months of my three years term. The other night, at the meeting of a literary society, some of the first Massachusetts boys have started. The lieutenant colonel of the regiment said he thought the regiment would be home by March. There is the cheerful optimism for you. Our regiment has been in the service just about the same length of time as the first and the two will probably be sent home about the same time. Presumably, the regiments first in the field will go out first, and so we may get home many months before the latter regiments from New Hampshire. They will have to keep them as a sort of police for a while after the war is really over. For a day or two, we have been having splendid weather, but underfoot it is simply awful. The Maryland salve is everywhere. The roads are a terror now, and in a short time will be absolutely impassable, except where corduroyed with logs laid crossways to make some sort of a platform for teams. We were reinforced last week by a brigade of New Jersey troops. Just below the blockade is a large fleet of gunboats, ready to cooperate in any move we may make. Last night, a big steamer ran the blockade in the darkness and there was a terrific hullabaloo. Joe Hubert has got back from New Hampshire, but the boxes confided to him have not yet arrived. He says there is one for me, and I am, of course, very anxious to get it. Letter 33. Camp Beaufort, near Bud's Fury, Maryland, December 15th, 1861. 
I wish you could take a peek in on my luxurious surroundings. I have a barber's chair to sit in. It has a canvas back and seat and was built by Damon, George B., the jack-at-all-trades of my tent party. There is a good fire, plenty of apples at my elbow, and, all in all, I am a pampered child of luxury. There are only two besides myself occupying the castle just at present, George Slade and George Damon, very companionable fellows and who have seen a great deal of the world. Two, George Kelly and Bill Wilbur are in the hospital, and E. Norman Gunnison, a fellow with a decided talent for writing poetry, is in the guardhouse for some infraction of camp discipline. So we three that are left have plenty of room and get along mighty comfortably. Slade and Damon are good cooks. We buy flour, butter, sugar, etc. and cook a big slack of fritters whenever the spirit moves us. And we have rabbits, chickens, wheat biscuits, and various other camp luxuries. And occasionally we make molasses candy of an evening. All this, you will understand, is outside of and in addition to our regular army rations. Here is our schedule of duty. Reve beats at sunrise, when we turn out and answer to roll call. Then comes the breakfast call. At 9 o'clock is guard mount. That is, the company which has been on guard duty is relieved by another. The remaining companies drill from 9 to 11 and 3 to 5. But now only occasionally, owing to weather conditions. Dinner call at 12, dress parade at sunset, tattoo is beat at 8. When the roll is called and the men can go to bed, the colonel says we will not have much drilling for the rest of the winter. The boys find plenty to amuse themselves with, and things are by no means dull in camp. Quite a number of musical instruments have found their way in, and there are men here who know how to play them too, fiddles and banjos and such. We had a large party of New Hampshire people in camp today. E.H. Rollins, John P. Hale, Daniel Clark, Waterman Smith, E.A. Straw, and others. There were also four good-looking New Hampshire women, and they got three rousing cheers at dress parade. The old rumor factory now has it that the second is going to Washington within a few days to act as provost guard. Joe Hubert's boxes have not yet arrived, and may not for some time yet. The railroads leading into Washington are buried in freight and express matter, but I suppose our stuff will get through in due time. You inquire what sort of a place this is. Well, it comes about as near to being no place at all as it could and still be on the map. There are but few houses hereabouts, and a good part of these are just Negro cabins. There is a store a little ways from here, but I have yet to discover where enough local trade can come from to keep it going. The Potomac is only about an eighth of a mile from our camp. From the western edge of the strip of woods in which we are camped, one can see the river for a long distance, with the rebel batteries and the upper works of their gunboat. George Page, which stick close up in Quantico Creek, out of reach of our gunboats, the river here is less than two miles wide and the deep water channel runs very near the other side. So a large vessel has to run close into the rebel batteries to get through at all. We witnessed a lively little brush the other day. 
The rebels started to throw up some works on shipping point and the Harriet Lane and five other gunboats dropped down and told them to stop it. The way they pitched shells onto that point was a caution. And a few nights ago, just for fun, as near as I could figure it out, one of our gunboats dropped down to the upper battery and had some sport for a while. I always did like fireworks, so I got the countersign and went out to take in the display. It was worth the money. You have thought to inquire for Heenan. Alas, poor Heenan. It grieves me to inform you that the other night he got into an argument with a company D-boy. Just what condition the other fellow was left in? If still alive, I don't know. But when Heenan returned to the bosom of his family, he was a sight. His face was badly bruised, both eyes in mourning, and one thumb chewed to a jelly. He says he wanted his thumbs to be mates, and the other was crushed out of shape before he left Portsmouth. End of section 10. Recorded by Isam El Arabi.